be sure to follow us on Instagram at criminalafpod or click on the link in the episode description. In this episode, we take a look at alternate theories involving the Manson family that have gained momentum and plausibility over the years. I'm Dave Jari. I'm Gary Quarter. And this is Criminal as Fuck. What's good, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Criminal AF. Once again, I am Dave Jari, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Garrett Quarter. How we doing? So, uh, I'd like to clear up a discussion Garrett and I had in the last episode on what makes first-degree murder and why it applied to Manson. In my example, I said that if me and Garrett were driving along and I shot and killed someone and, you know, you didn't report it, that would make you just as liable for for first-degree murder. But that explanation more so describes felony murder, not first-degree murder. So our friend Follow Flint on Instagram, who is currently in law school, explained the following. In order to charge first-degree murder, all parties must have what they call mens rea, which is Latin for guilty mind. Mm. Meaning that you have to have the intent to commit murder and actus rea, which is Latin for guilty act, which is the act or omission that compromises the physical element of a murder. Ah. So Follow Flint says that in the case for Manson, he wanted people killed, which is the mental intent of committing murder. Gotcha. And he instructed people to do it, which was the action. You know what's hilarious? What? All I'm thinking about right now is that you have to learn Latin to go to fucking law school. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I could be a lawyer this whole time. I'm not learning Latin. <laughs> Dude, that's awesome. Shout out to the criminals out there. That's amazing that if somebody, if we fucks up, like, I like yeah. that, that they check us like, hey, oh, yeah, yeah, hey, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. check us. Yeah, yeah that, I like it. You learn something new every day. So, like, so in this example, you know, in extension, Tex and the others followed through on his wishes and committed the actual murders. It's similar to a husband who hires a hitman to kill his wife. Yeah. You know, the husband didn't actually pull the trigger, but... You you basically set the murder up. He put it out there in the universe. Yeah, so you're you're going down. If you tell me that you killed somebody in a car, you're going down. I'm not going down. I mean, you'll get something yeah, if yeah, you don't yeah, report sure. it. Conspiracy, whatever. I don't know, whatever. But, you know. So hopefully that gives a better understanding to why Manson was convicted of first-degree murder. And thanks again to Follow Flint for helping us out with that explanation. Seriously, thank you, buddy. Now we have a few criminal shout-outs to give this week, and they go out to Maria Celine, Courtney Slay, Pickle Jenny, Sparky Shearer, and Beth Esselman. Thank you all so much for supporting Criminal AF. It means more to us than you know. You guys rock. You can become a criminal as well by joining our Patreon, or you can become a barista with a one-time contribution by visiting buymeacoffee.com and buy us one or more coffees to help us support the podcast. Links to both our Patreon and Buy Me A Coffee can be found at criminalafpodcast.com backslash support. Now, for those of you joining us for the first time, this is a true crime podcast. There will be talk of murder, rape, torture, assault, and pretty much any crime that would haunt your nightmares at any given moment. There will be detailed descriptions of said events, and there will be vulgar language. <laughs> like fuck. Oh, man. Now, we understand that Criminal AF is not for everyone, but we just ask that you at least give it a listen. And if it's not for you, thanks for checking it out. But if it is, welcome welcome to to the debauchery. debauchery. All right, everybody line up. It's time for mail call. Mail call. Mail call. So we post the AMA to our Instagram story every week for people to ask questions for a chance to be answered on the show. And the questions are piling up. I love it. 
So I'm going to read a few of them here. And the first up is Maria Celine 26. And she asks, is there a story you won't touch? Maybe it's been overly covered or too gruesome. Mm. I think we both talked about this, that we're probably going to try to stay away from the, the big guys. Obviously, we've done some big guys. There's so much information out there on Ted Bundy. Everybody knows the story. Everybody saw the Netflix. Jeffrey Dahmer, too, which was an amazing series on yeah, Netflix. And I'm one. so happy Evan Peters won the the um, oh, he was Golden Globe for Best yeah. Actor in a TV yeah. Series. Because he deserved that shit for that series. I think every anybody who listens to this podcast 100% saw that series. Right. So, you know, like Dahmer or those guys, it's just, everybody knows the story. Right. Everybody knows It'll just it. be redundant. Yeah. There's no, like ground shattering fucking information that's going to come but, out of it but see we we do help we did helter skelter the three part but it was fun to get into it too. it was fun to get into so it who because, knows who because knows? this is well this story I don't know, bro i got so deep in the fucking rabbit hole you have no idea you're gonna don't storm the capital on me yeah. Dude, you know? <laughs> <can't>, yeah. <laughs> don't start following the cue boards buddy you know? <laughs> uh but i would say you know other than that, i i do agree with the with the major major names but i would say anything that has to do with children like i know we've done some episodes with with kids involved and everything but for somebody who specifically targets targets children, children yeah i have a very hard time yeah there's no point in even giving you know I mean? them the lane day yeah like i know uh, a couple of our listeners uh, have requested like albert fish and, and what you fucking weirdos uh, <laughs> yeah I don't, I don't know i mean Maybe, maybe sometime in the future, but I, I don't know. Yeah, that's what I mean. We, we kind of don't want to say we're not going to do something because, right. we, listen, there's no there's no storyline in this podcast. We're just, we're yeah, winging yeah. this shit. Right. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, guys like that, I have a very difficult time with. So thank you, Maria Celine 26 for that question. And we move on to Davit. Once again, Davit was uh, in the last episode, too. Uh, he wants to know, how many total hours does it take to produce each episode on average? <laughs> listen. Listen, 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 listen. This is a highly functioning mainstream <laughs> podcast. All right, we got producers, we got lighting, we got we, J Maid. Yeah. <laughs> listen, uh, we crank out episodes within an hour. All right, yeah. yeah you know, yeah. we send it to the editors, the editors send it back to us. You know, is you know. Let's just say it takes a long <laughs> fucking time. Right. <laughs> way longer than it should be. Way, way longer than it should. Uh, I would say each episode, if you're talking uh, research, recording, writing the story, uh, editing, producing, adding music, and all the little things that we do, uh, on top of the schedule that we already work. Yeah. We, um, yeah, we still work 60 hours a week. Yeah. And it's it's it, it takes an entire... Our schedule is four days on, four days off, typically, if we're not doing... You know, mandatory overtime or anything like that. <laughs> you mean we are doing mandatory yeah. overtime? So it takes every single day of our days off to freaking do this. So like when people at work are like, "Hey, oh, did you check the new uh, thing on Netflix?" I'm like, "Bro, I haven't seen a fucking TV in months." <laughs> it's true. <laughs> so yeah, it, it takes a long time, but hey, it's all worth it because we enjoy it. Yeah. And, you know, we get to hear from people like you guys, you know, giving us encouragement and, and words of positivity, and it, it all makes it worth it, and it's great, and we love it. So thank you, Davit. And now we go to Buffy F., who asks, serious question, mayo on a hot dog, yes or no? Buffy? Yeah. You're absolutely crazy. Abs- no, 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 no. No, there's not even a situation where mayo would be okay. Like, there's no mayo in something. Yeah. 
Like you. you oh my god! Let's see it. You don't like mayo? No, I love mayo. Okay, mayo on a burger. On a burger. Okay. But just the thought of a just spreading mayo, spreading mayo on, a on a hot dog. dog. See, I, see, when I first read this question, I, I I thought of it in context. No. Of in a hot dog bun. Yeah, yeah, that's how I looked at it. All right. So, have you ever had uh, beanie weenies? No. Get no. paint it's, the picture for it's me here. Baked beans with hot dogs. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, being the old Canadian French, you know, we we make do with whatever we have, you know, growing up. We did beanie weenies with mayo. You mix the mayo in with the baked beans. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> okay, keep going. <laughs> yeah, so you mix the mayo in with your beanie weenies. So in that case, yes, I mean mayo with a hot dog. But not on a bun. No, no. See, when I first, when I first hear this, I think of them just taking mayo and spreading it just all over, lathering it all over. That is disgusting. Sorry, that's <laughs> gonna be a no for me. Yeah, obviously, Dave loves it, so you know it's fifty fifty over here at the yeah. Criminal AF. I, I will say, it depends on the situation. And then Iron Chickadee asks, "What time is it on the moon?" I do have an actual answer for this. Do you really? Because I have. If I had my if I had my Speedmaster on right now, I would definitely be able to tell you, but I don't. So. <laughs> So, and what, I would have been able to pull that out real quick. Right. Like I would have been cool. I want to hear what what your what your what you think it is. What time is it on the moon? All right. So I'm trying to think of some interstellar shit right now. Okay. As we get away, time skips forward. Mm-hmm. Or no, back. Wait. Yeah, time skips forward. So our our time is based on the Earth's rotation around the sun. Yeah. So and, the, and its own axis and everything. Yeah. Like that. So the moon would be off of its axis. The moon rotates around the Earth. Way faster. So time would go fast. You ready for the answer? Yeah, just give me it. Okay. There is no interstellar time. Time is meaningless in space. So Yeah, but here's here's the thing. Whatever time it's no. called it's called universal no, time. No, 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 no. no, this is actual thing. It's called universal time. And it's based off of the east coast of the United States time zone. Oh, so it's so like Florida, you know, where NASA is. So it's so, 210 on the moon right now. It's 210 on the moon right okay, now. Okay, sweet. Yep. Make it easy. That's so, not true, though. Uh, how is that not true? That's, That's not how true. they base it. No, I know, but it's not so true. So when you have, like, Americans and Russians and Chinese and everybody, they go out in, out in space and yeah. they're circling around the Earth. And, I'm with you. And, like, they go to the moon or whatever. That's the time. The universal time is uh, Eastern Standard Time in the United States. I saw Matthew McConaughey go to a black hole and he aged 40 years, okay? <laughs> It's not true. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, it's 2.10 on the moon as we're speaking right now. All right, and then Ryan Bishop, he wants to know. Here's We're going to get a little edgy on this one. If you could commit murder for 24 hours with <laughs> Jesus no Christ. punishment or judgment, would you? Jesus Christ. What uh, Self-incriminating, uh, would I commit murder if it was legal? for Like a purge situation, I think? Like we're a purge, about? yeah. No. No? No. I have a list, bro. <laughs> That's terrifying. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, because, I mean, at that point, yeah. hypothetically, if there's, like, murders legal for 24 hours, I'm just worried about protecting my family for that 24 hours. I'm not I'm not going out in the street. Now, now I'll put myself in a different situation. Right. I have nothing to lose. It's just you. I might, you know, at the end of this is our, it's the movie, uh, this is the end. Yeah. I might be walking around with Shannon Tatum on a leash, you know, at the end of... Oh, yeah. <laughs> that, that, if I had nothing to lose for. <laughs> Shannon Tate, yum. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm going to say no. You're going to say no? Yeah. I'm going to say yes. Are you saying you could go? You would go after people that deserved it? 
Correct. Oh, so now we're just vigilantes in here. People who have done who have wronged me in my life. If I could get away with it. <laughs> See you. Like if I found out right now if if I had cancer, right? And I had Dave a month to live. I'm sorry to tell you this. Yeah. You have a month to live. <laughs> yeah, poor doctor. Who gives you that? You wronged me. Yeah, like it, it, it's the it's the pettiness inside me that I refuse to die before any of these pieces of shit that fucking wronged me in my life live longer than I do. Fuck you. I'm with you. I hear you. I understand. Now I'm gonna get a psyche valve. <laughs> You're definitely getting brought in the office. Let me <laughs> Hey Dave. It's not say no. Not what. Not that I would do. No, it no, no. I know what you mean. I know what you. I know what you. Exactly if what I could get away with it, give me the Cape Crusader. All right, we got one last one, and it's from Joe T. Jari. What? Why does that name sound familiar? Jari. <laughs> he has a two-part question. How do you figure out which story to do? And Dave, who is your favorite brother? Oh, so yeah. Gee, I wonder. You uh, gotta say him now. Huh? You have to say him now. He, you don't. Well, I have another brother. I know, but you have to say him. Like he, I, I he, say he Joe. Com- yeah, he commented in the pot. He's he's supporting the podcast. He is supporting he's the podcast. You know, so, you yeah. Gotta- my brother Paul hasn't hasn't. No, I can't say that because he has shared on Facebook. My brother Paul. So, I would have to say my favorite brother. Yikes! This is kind of this might be yeah a little controversial. You might want to keep this one. I'm gonna say me. Boom! I'm a brother. great answer. I'm a brother. Great answer. Yeah. Great so answer. I'm, I'm, I'm my favorite brother. You know, I don't know those two, but, you know, yeah. I'll say I'll say Dave Jari, too. I mean, the other two, are they're okay. They're all right. <laughs> Shots fired. I'll keep them around for a while. But uh, as far as the first one, first part of the question goes, how do you figure out which story to do? It's basically random, to be honest. You know, uh, listener requests, you know, gets added. I come up with a general list of episodes that I would like to do. Like, after this one, I have, like, seven or eight episodes that are in the queue. But uh, what order they come out in, Who it knows? depends. But, you know, basically, I just scroll through the internet, you know. Yeah, war, yeah. We find, just find something we interesting. Both, we both hear a fucked up story. We're like, dude. Yeah. We're like, oh, we got to do this one. Yeah. But, yeah, and, and just our past experience. Like, this this episode that we've been doing, the Manson, I mean, this is Garrett's favorite so i was like fine garrett jesus <laughs> we'll fucking do it all right yeah that's exactly that's basically how it goes he's not lying <laughs> <laughs> so yeah so thank you everybody for your questions uh keep them coming in appreciate it we'll post uh, another ask me anything uh, prior to the next episode all right dave you ready for our uh trip to florida let's do it Today, this one man's a little different. This man was never caught. He's this crazy son of a bitch is out, still out in the wild. He, really? Yes. Breaking news. W-I-N-K news. Live <laughs> at five. Man breaks into Joe's Crab Shack in Fort Myers, defecates on the floor. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't get the shaken crab basket. A man defecated on the floor of a restaurant in Fort Myers after breaking in early Saturday morning and stealing alcohol and other items. 
The Fort Myers Police Department needs help identifying this suspect. According to the FMPD, around 2.30 a.m. on Saturday, the suspect climbed through a small window at Joe's Crab Shack on 2024 West 1st Street in Fort Myers. The suspect then stole various items, including alcohol, and defecated on the floor of the restaurant before leaving. <laughs> why Why you got to poop on the floor? I mean, I can, un- I, I can understand that, because what if you had a nervous stomach? Robbing, oh. robbing a place is, yeah, you is, gotta be is nervous a pretty big you. deal, you know what I mean? So the anxiety gets to you, you know, you try to rush, and you know, you get a little bubble gut in the process. The suspect is seen in a red hat, gray sweatshirt, light-colored shorts, sunglasses, and white shoes. It's very insane and disgusting. I just don't understand how anyone could do something like this. That's really disgusting, and yeah, it's one of those Florida man stories that puts us on the map, <laughs> said store owner. <laughs> <laughs> shout out to the Florida yeah, man. shout out. Uh, there's <laughs> other ways to go about making a name for yourself than doing something like that, so hopefully they catch this guy. <laughs> If you, if you have any information about the, the, the mystery pooper, <laughs> contact FMPD or Southwest Florida Crime Stoppers at 1-800-780-TIPS. <laughs> you know what would be fantastic? See, I, now... No, wait, wait, yeah, hold on. Right, you know what would be fucking fantastic? Uh, if this guy gets caught because he's recognized by one of the criminal AF fans... <laughs> <laughs> I would be like, yes, we're oh. doing the Lord's work over here in this podcast. <laughs> What's funny is that we sometimes, you know, we had a couple of people say, you know, why, why Florida? Why are you guys picking on? We're not picking on Florida. No. Like every single state in the United States. And I'm sure, you know, our, our listeners in Australia, New Zealand, you know, Great Britain, wherever can understand that there's a section of your country where it's just a congregation of all walks of life. Yeah, I could easily search craziest news stories from around the world, and there's going to be crazier ones. Right. But it's just, it, it's it's become a, like a meme here yeah. about Florida, the Florida <laughs> man. It's it's a legend. You know what I mean? It's funny because, like, for those that don't know, is is Florida because of its you know weather, you know location, everything like that. You have like people from up north retiring down to Florida. You have. Random people, you know, because of the weather going, you know, moving to Florida, colleges, you know, everything. So you get a plethora of... It's a biodome. A biodome <laughs> of people. And sometimes, along with that, some fucking crazy-ass people go it's there. True. It's true, but the true Floridians are usually the best ones. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's be honest. Oh, man. That's fucking hilarious. But have you ever been to Joe's Crab Shack? I've never been. You've never been? No. It's pretty good. Is it? But now I'm not going to be able to go there without thinking about a guy just taking a shit in the middle <laughs> of a restaurant. You walk into crab, <laughs> Joe's Crab Shack, you're like looking at the floor, making sure you're not stepping in. The shake, the shake baskets are pretty good. I'm no, Joe's sure. Crab Shack, is that like Waffle House? No, it's... Not, oh. I mean, I mean, in the essence where like Waffle House, you go into a Waffle House and the food is so fucking good. Like the place is a dump, but it's so yeah, you, fucking You might good. get shot while you're having your delicious waffles. That's yeah. what you're saying. Yeah. Well, not only that, but the grill probably hasn't been, the griddle probably hasn't been cleaned in like fucking no, I would three months. S- no, I would say Joe's Crab Shack's a little bit more upscale. A little, oh, little upscale. Ups- yeah. It's like a Texas Roadhouse-esque. It's like, oh, okay. yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's a fancy chain compared to. It better be if you're getting crab crab yeah. baskets. Yeah, Waffle House is a you know that's what I mean. The only time to go there is after the strip club at three a.m. Right? Like that's that's the Waffle House uh, the way. Oh man! All right, so let's get into this episode. Now we're doing alternate theories. So these are, for all intents and purposes, are not proven. Are not you know it's merely speculation. We're not saying that any of these theories are true if they're false. However, they're 
could be some that are true. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's for fun. This is for fun. Just it's humor us. Fun, yeah. I know people are going to be like, oh, some people are going to be like, come on, guys. Yeah. That. But, you know, right. we're just having fun with it. Yeah. So, but it, I mean, it is it is good to note that because, in my opinion, the whole Helter Skelter theory is the most far-fetched one out of all of these. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? And and as, as we discuss, you know, as we go a little bit further into this episode, there are detectives, attorneys who were close to the case, who basically are calling uh, the prosecutor, Vincent uh, Bugliosi, a fucking crackpot because of this fucking th- helter-skelter theory. Like, we have the drug theory, we have the copycat theory, we have the MK Ultra theory, we have, like, this is, helter-skelter is actually crazier than the yeah. MK Ultra theory. Yeah. It's you funny I mean? how that one just stuck, you know? Right. Just- like, nope. Going with this theory, and we're sticking with it. Which but. I mean, we talked about in the earlier episode too. Is the the prosecution is going to use whatever they need to, to right. convict these people and get it done with? They're yeah. not going to. So yeah. So I mean, you got to think of the time too. You know, it's 1969. Uh, it's Los Angeles. The L.A. riots were just uh, a few years earlier in yeah. 1965. Yeah, it fits the it fits the, it fits the whole the bill. bill, right? And you know, and and then you had like the summer of love. So you have the racism. You have the fucking hippie culture. You have. Like, all this kind of shit. So, like, oh, this guy's fucking crazy enough. He's, he's a fucking cult leader. He's a hippie. He's a fucking racist. Let's piece it all together, and he's going to start a race war. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Now look what acid will do to you kids. Don't yeah. take it. <laughs> Schedule three. Say no to drugs. <laughs> so we'll go ahead and we'll jump right into this episode with our first theory, the copycat theory. On August 6, 1969, just days before the Tate-LaBianca murders, Manson family member Bobby Beausoleil was found by police sleeping in the back of a Fiat on the side of Highway 101 in San Luis Obispo. When questioned, Bobby stated that the car had broken down the night before and he was waiting for daylight to fix it. Police knew this was a lie, as the Fiat was reported stolen from the home of a murder victim. Bobby was taken into custody and questioned about his possible involvement in the murder of Gary Hinman. Hinman was born December 24, 1934 in Colorado. He was known as a renaissance figure of the hippie movement, a political activist, Zen Buddhist, musician, piano teacher, who was working towards his PhD in sociology at UCLA, and he was also a Manson family associate who allegedly had a mescaline lab in his basement. Hinman was found dead in his home at 964 Old Topanga Canyon Road on July 31, 1969, slashed across the left side of his face and stab wounds through his heart. Why the murder of Hinman, who was a friend of Beausoleil, occurred is up for debate. Charlie himself said it was because Hinman owed the family money, which he refused to give. But Beausoleil himself gave a more detailed explanation. Charles Manson had befriended members of the Straight Satan Motorcycle Club and used them as protection after he shot a small-time drug dealer named Bernard Crow, who Manson thought was also a member of the Black Panthers. Manson believed he had killed Crow and feared the Black Panthers would seek retribution. In fact, Crow, who was not a member of the Black Panthers, survived the shooting and went into hiding. Beausoleil, who was trying to impress both Manson and the Straight Satans, set up a drug deal with his friend Gary Hinman on behalf of the motorcycle club. Beausoleil purchased the drugs from Hinman and delivered the goods to the straight Satans. The drugs allegedly turned out to be bad and the club demanded their money back from Beausoleil. 
Manson had told Beausoleil to return to Hinman, along with Susan Atkins and Mary Brunner, both of whom had a sexual relationship with Hinman, and force him to hand over $20,000 Manson believed he had. For three days, the trio kept Hinman hostage in his own home, demanding the money, with Beausoleil roughing up Hinman while the girls would care for him. At some point, with Hinman still not cooperating, a call was made to Manson. Charlie arrived, along with Bruce Davis. Hinman excitedly yelled, Charlie! He was happy to see Manson, who Hinman liked and thought his presence meant a reprieve from the abuse. Allegedly, Manson stormed in and sliced Hinman across the face with a Confederate sword and demanded Hinman sign over his cars and the home to Manson. Unknown to Charlie, Beausoleil had already convinced Hinman to do so. Manson left as quickly as he arrived. For the remainder of the weekend, Beausoleil and the girls were trying to fix the gash on Hinman's face, with Hinman persistent that he needed to go to the hospital. Finally, Beausoleil called Manson and said, Look, man, you left me with this problem. You came and cut the guy. There was no need for that. It's your problem. Manson responded back, You handle it. You know what you need to do as well as I do. Beausoleil then grabbed his knife and stabbed Hinman twice through his heart. Beausoleil, Atkins, and Brunner then staged a home to appear as if the Black Panthers had killed Hinman in retaliation for the crow shooting. They drew a panther paw print on the wall in Hinman's blood and wrote the words, Political Piggy. After Beausoleil was arrested for the murder of Hinman, Manson panicked. He felt that Beausoleil would pin the murders of Hinman and Bernard Crow on him, as at the time Manson didn't know that Crow was still alive. Who came up with the plan is up for debate, but the stage was set. Three days after Beausoleil's arrest, the family would commit copycat murders at the Tate and LaBianca homes in order to prove that Beausoleil didn't kill Hinman, as these apparently similar murders were committed while Beausoleil was in custody. Police didn't pick up on the similarities, and the rest is history. Vincent Bugliosi's uh, case theory and subsequent book, Helter Skelter, uh, which happens to be still the number one true crime book ever. Wow. Yeah. Didn't know that. Yep. So the narrative uh, that Manson wanted to create a race war wasn't a popular theory among those closest to the case, including the detectives and other prosecutors, as we talked about earlier. They believe that Bugliosi created and embellished the Helter Skelter theory based loosely on ramblings from a few family members. Uh, Manson's known racism and his pinpoint recital of the Bible. So he basically just took those things and pieced it into this whole fucking elaborate theory of creating a race war. Now, Bugliosi himself admitted just prior to his death that he didn't think that Manson believed in a fantastical world of living in a pit while a worldwide race war waged on. I don't think so either. You know, many involved with the case, you know, they stand by the the copycat theory, uh, but they didn't have the power to overrule Bugliosi because he was the lead, whatever. Now, does this make Manson and the others innocent? Absolutely not. No. No. Like, they still committed the murders under Charlie's direction, and the rest is history. Yeah, Charlie's still... He's not an idiot. 
he's tra- he knows he's trying to manipulate these people. He's gonna tell his fucking lunatic followers whatever stories and biblical events that they want to hear. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to like latch on to what he said. But this this theory is what I the most I can see. It sounds very like oh we gotta get hit we gotta get uh, Bobby out of jail. Like, yeah. How can we do it? Right. It seems very plausible. More than Elder Skelter. Oh yeah. Also, too, I feel I almost feel bad for Bobby in this situation, which you shouldn't because he's a fucking he stabbed the guy 46 times or whatever it was. Yeah. But uh, I mean, his it was he, this guy, they were very close friends. Yeah, he felt horrible. He sat there with this guy for three days. Like they said, he, they held him. He held him hostage. I'm from I listened to the the phone interview from Bobby and he was like, yeah, after Charlie slapped uh, slashed him, I just felt kind of bad. He bled out for three days and I, you know, I just sat with him and told him it was going to be all right until I just ended it. That that's horrible. I and I I don't know who who knows if he is just saying this to kind of take blame away from himself. Correct. And say Charlie was the main reason Charlie started, you know, with the the slash on the face. But at the same time, I it almost feel it feels. I mean, obviously you can't go off of your own feelings, but it felt genuine from what he was saying in that interview. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, the whole the whole thing is that, and you see this with a lot of other other uh, family members. You know, even ones that weren't even committed in the murders. Like when Manson got arrested, and you know, they all went off and lived their own lives or whatever. Like it took them years, years to of therapy and reconditioning and everything like to, to break the basically the trance that Manson had on these people. Now, when you when you go into the context of the people that did the murders. You know, like Bobby Beausoleil and Leslie and all them. Like, it took decades for them to finally come to the acknowledgement, like... Yeah, maybe Charlie's not a good person. Yeah. Like, deep down, there's probably still... You know what I mean? That doesn't go away. Yeah. That well, there are, there are a few. There's uh, Squeaky. Squeaky from. Yeah. Uh, she she actually went on, after the whole Manson thing, I think in 1976, she went on to, like, quote-unquote, uh, attempt to assassinate President Gerald Ford. <laughs> Like, she showed up with a gun and, like, pointed it right at him or whatever. There wasn't any ammo in the gun or or, or something went wrong where she didn't, but she actually had a gun pointed right fucking... That poor girl's wig was, wig was split yeah. after this whole thing. <laughs> yes. Who gets mescaline for a bunch of bikers that like to drink, too? Come on, Bobby. You, you should have known. You're a druggie. You should have known that you shouldn't be take, mixing mescaline and, and alcohol. <laughs> there, these guys were... It is kind of like reckless to get involved in that whole situation too. With a very, I mean, I know. So the reason why the straight Satan's got involved in this whole fucking fiasco is because uh, when Manson shot uh, Bernard Crow, yeah, and Manson started freaking out like he thought he killed him, and that Crow was part of the Black Panthers. Black Panthers. So he's like, damn, I need, I need protection. Well, all that, all that was on the news that day was, oh, Black Panther was shot and bo- or Black Panther's body was found, and he was just like, I got him, I yeah. got him. They're gonna come after us. Right, this it was, a, it dumb was a different guy. Yeah. Dumbass didn't even know he didn't even kill him. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, they're all gonna come here and murder us. Yeah. So yeah, so they got involved with the Straight Satans, you know, for protection, and then Bobby, who was kind of like a hanger on with the Straight Satans, like he wanted to join their their club. Yeah. Um, he yeah. was like, hey. Let me get you some. Yeah, uh, I'll, get you, I'll get you some drugs. Yeah. I know what I'm doing. But but Bobby has, in the entire Manson family story, Bobby has always been the fuck up. If you look at like multiple stories, Manson always had like that big brother attitude towards him. Like you fucking dumbass. Yeah. Like he belittled <laughs> this guy. Yeah. I mean, he belittled every man, uh, every male figure in the family. But right. Bobby got the brunt of all his uh, his uh, mess ups. Right. 
Yeah, he was very Bobby was very like impressionable. Where yeah, you know, I need to fit in with yes. these people. I need to fit in with Manson. I need to fit in with the Straight Satans. Let me go out and fucking do all this There's shit. Something very primal about the whole thing too. Like what? Like you just your will. Like I got to do anything to be in this club. Oh yeah, it's very like medieval times. Only. Right. Yeah, I got to be with the cool kids. So yeah, so we'll go into the next chapter where we will discuss the Melcher theory. Terry Melcher, the son of Doris Day and his girlfriend Candace Bergen, lived at 10050 Cielo Drive before Sharon Tate and Roman Polanski. He had made his mark on the music industry by producing the first two albums from The Birds, as well as hits from The Beach Boys. It was this connection that Terry had met Charles Manson. Beach Boy Dennis Wilson invited Melcher to his house when the family was staying there. Along with Wilson, Melcher's associate, Greg Jacobson, became fascinated with Charlie's philosophy and lifestyle and began urging Terry to record him. After a couple of meetings with Manson at Melcher's Cielo Drive home, Jacobson talked Melcher and a music executive into coming down to Spawn's movie ranch to hear Manson, Bobby Beausoleil, and the girls play and discuss the possibility of doing a documentary. A friend of Melcher's recalls, once Terry got to Spawn Ranch, he just wanted to get the hell out of there. It was filthy and very obvious that there was no talent. He sat and listened to Manson's girls while Charlie played the guitar. He felt like he had to get out and tried to make a graceful exit. During this audition, an associate of the family was belligerently drunk and was making a scene. Manson proceeded to beat the man bloody in front of his guests. Melcher, Jacobson, and the music executive left the ranch, never to return again. According to Jacobson, he stated, I think Terry showed some interest in Manson's music, but there was never any yes, we will record you. It was like that was the preliminaries, and nothing ever came of it. But Manson saw it another way. He claimed that Melcher made some big promises and never came through. To Charlie, it became clear that Melcher had failed him. It was Terry Melcher who denied him his chance to play his music for the world. This perceived slight would fester in Manson's mind for months. Another brush with fame fell through as well. Phil Kaufman, who had befriended Manson in Terminal Island Prison, had connections to the music industry, specifically a man named Gary Stromberg, who worked at Universal. Kaufman told Manson that upon his release, he would introduce Manson to Stromberg. Since Manson was to be released prior to Kaufman, he advised Manson to take some time to brush up on his songs, and when Kaufman was released, he would set up the meeting. However, Manson ignored the advice, and after starting his commune with the first four women, Manson made his own introductions to Stromberg. As expected, the audition went horrible. Despite this, Manson welcomed Kaufman into the family upon his release, and Kaufman shared in a plethora of women. They would party at Kaufman's friend's house, Harold True, on Waverly Drive, and spent countless nights there, playing music, doing drugs, and having orgies, and True would become an associate of the family for a time. Eventually, as time wore on, 
Manson could sense that Kaufman wasn't buying into the whole free love, anti-establishment concept that Manson was trying to create. The two had a falling out, so Kaufman left, and so did Manson's real connection to the music industry. Manson's anger would continue to build. According to the theory, Manson wanted revenge on the ones who he felt slighted him. Even though he knew Terry Melcher had moved, he targeted the Cielo Drive House as a message to send to Melcher. He did the same with Kaufman. Because Harold True's house was now vacant, Manson chose the house next door to send his message. But what about the murder of Gary Hinman? How does that play into all of this? Gary was a talented musician and piano player. According to Mother Mary herself, Mary Brunner, who was present during the Hinman murder, Manson wanted Hinman to join his band and felt Hinman's experience would help the band get a record deal. So Manson sent Hinman's friend, Bobby Bosley, to convince him, along with Susan Atkins and Mary Brunner, to seduce him. But after three days, Hinman still refused, infuriating Manson, who showed up, sliced his face, and ordered him killed. The thing I love about this theory is that there's a theory within a theory. Because, uh, as we say, you know, Mother Mary herself, M- Mary Brunner, uh, she said that Hinman was killed because Manson wanted him to join his band. <laughs> <laughs> and he refused. So Manson's like, well, go fuck yourself then. You know? <laughs> Like, how crazy is that? You know, you take all this, like, elaborate, like, helter-skelter and copycats and fucking bull and drug money and this and... And, and it comes down, like, comes down it to, comes down to a soldier's grudge. That's yeah. that's what I like, too, is, like, you know, he, like, my my whole theory, like, what I, I don't truly believe it, but there's, there's a, it's in the back of my head, is that he did this solely as a target at Hollywood Elite because he just feels slighted, slighted by the entire music industry. Right. He didn't care. He just wanted to kill somebody famous. The one issue is that I have with this is that if Manson wanted like Terry Melcher and, and Hinman and all these other people, uh, how true, if he wanted like all them dead, then why didn't they just go and do it? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you... no, I hate that house because he lived there one time. Yeah. I want to send him a message. So I'm going to kill these random fucking people. Yeah. You would, ju- you would think you would just kill the people that you right. wanted to. Yeah. Yeah, no, the, I, I see what you're saying. There's so while while all of this makes sense, it's pretty cut and dry. You know, it doesn't really sit right with me. I also don't agree with him saying that Manson had no talent. I think his. I I, I enjoyed listening to his music. <laughs> oh, you like you like cult leaders too? You like murdering cult leaders? No, I'm just fucking with you. I don't know if anybody uh, out there wants to join him. <laughs> taking applications. <laughs> no, I, I I don't. I think people were off put by the person himself, especially if you're not someone that would normally follow, like blatantly follow somebody. Yeah. His aura probably was very creepy, and that's his aura is what attracted people to the these these uh, yes. you know people that needed something in their life. I think you have to be in order in order to be attracted to that, you have to be in, in a particular state of mind at that time. At that time, correct. Yeah. To to get so, sucked in, right? So if you're, so an you're, average person that's successful that's doing this thing and meets this guy. It was like there's something Fucking weird this about dude's this guy. A nut job. Yeah. You so I mean? think that's what held him back in the industry. Like yeah. nobody, like oh, you know, imagine those guys going back to their, you know, back to the recording studios. Like, hey, you, did you check out Charlie? And they're like, yeah, this fucking dude's weird as hell. 
Like, yeah, man, that guy's, you know. Yeah, because there, there were a lot of people who were like, yeah, this guy has something. You know? Yeah. Like I, Neil Young from Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. You can't tell me that. I know Dils, I know it was just Dennis Wilson that was named multiple times, but there's no way that the other Beach Boys weren't hanging out at his house. You know what sure. I mean? Yeah. So. And if, and if he was that shitty of a fucking singer or songwriter or anything. Why did they? I think it's like they have three songs of his. Yeah, that or or, or associated with Manson's right. writing and stuff like that. So right. you can't you can't tell me like that's. I think it was a cop out to say that he didn't have talent. I think you just they just didn't like the person who he was. Yeah, and plus he had lots of drugs with him. Yeah, and w- women, women who will do anything that anything. he says. Anything. Anything. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Might be a little smelly. But yeah. It might be. But you know we're gonna take it down anyway, dude. That brings up a whole nother subject. Like when, they're, especially when they're living at Spawn Ranch. Like at, at this time, there's there's probably a hundred at least of these family members that are yeah. in and out, whatever. In and out, coming and going. Like how many bathrooms and showers <laughs> were available to these people? Like imagine a hundred people using one shower a day. Oof. Like they had to go like days, if not sure. Fucking yeah, they're, a week. they're probably taking like uh, like Little House on the Prairie baths. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> same banana water that was warmed up. <laughs> but then again, you got a lot of people to help clean. Yeah. So that shower might have been clean four or five times a day. No, who am I kidding? They didn't take showers. They didn't Come take on. Showers. Like, You're living off the land, man. Have all that from under. Whoa. <laughs> Belmenta, Belmenta cheese. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Oh, it's disgusting. Dave, come over here, Dave. <laughs> Speaking of rabbit holes, we're going down something <laughs> pretty fucking disgusting. All right, all right, all right. Chapter three, chapter three. All right, so we're going to... Dave, you want to braid my pu- pubic hair, Dave? <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. We can make a bra. You can braid it from my armpit up to my... <laughs> Sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. Come on. We're getting out of track here. All right, so this is this is the next theory. Uh, it's called the drug burn theory. Now, at face value, about you know this whole fucking drug operation going on, but when you actually dive into like what was occurring, according to this theory, like you're talking like satanic rituals, you're talking uh, sadomasochists, fucking orgies, and it, it, it spirals. And this is just the victims. We're not talking about the Manson family. We'll, we'll, we'll jump into it. You'll see what I'm talking about in uh, chapter three. Yeah, this one gets a little wild. The drug burn theory has always had traction. From the moment police arrived on the scene at 10050 Cielo Drive, it was apparent that drugs may have played a vital role in the deaths of Sharon Tate, Jay Sebring, Abigail Folger, and Wojtek Frykowski. Inside Sebring's Porsche, police found a bag of marijuana, vials of cocaine, and a brown gummy substance believed to be a narcotic. Inside the house, sporadic locations with marijuana, capsules of MDA, brown, green, and yellow identified tablets throughout. During their autopsies, it was said that Tate was found with a trace amount of THC in her system, but was redacted from her final autopsy report as to not sully her name. They didn't find any drugs in Jay Sebring's system, but they also didn't test for MDA. Abigail Folger had 2.4 milligrams of MDA in her bloodstream, and Wojtek Frykowski had 0.6 milligrams of MDA in his urine. According to the book, The Manson File, by Nicholas Schreck, 
The murders at Cielo Drive occurred because Tex Watson wanted to muscle his way on a large drug deal going on at the home between Frykowski, Folger, and Sebring, and a supplier. Watson, a small-time drug dealer, got wind of the deal in that Frykowski and Sebring, with Folger as their financier, were about to make a major push into L.A. drug scene, and Tex and the family wanted them out of the picture. According to Sebring's receptionist, there was to be a major drug transaction of mescaline and cocaine at Cielo Drive on the night of the murders between a mafia supplier and Frykowski and Sebring. The receptionist confirmed that the delivery had taken place, but no large quantities of drugs were found after their murders, leading people who believe in a drug burn theory that Tex Watson and the girls made off with the drugs. It goes a bit deeper than just Cielo Drive. It was also believed that the murder of Gary Hinman, who was a dealer and allegedly had a mescaline lab in his basement, was killed for the same reason. It's also alleged that the victims of the Tate murders and the Manson family knew each other, or at least knew of each other. In Michael Caine's autobiography, he states that he attended a party hosted by Mama Cass Elliott of the Mama and Papas and was introduced to Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring. At the same party, he was also introduced to Charles Manson, Tex Watson, and some of the girls, meaning that the Manson family was important enough in that inner circle to be given an introduction. Abigail Folger and Wojtek Frykowski were also frequent guests of Mama Cass's parties. It was alleged that a day prior to the murders, Manson himself showed up at Cielo Drive to sell Frykowski and Sebring cocaine and marijuana. Manson showed them the product, It was beaten up by the two men and kicked off the property. Did they steal Manson's drugs in the beating? In retaliation, Manson ordered the murders of everyone inside that house, with Frykowski, the dealer, and Folger, the financier, receiving the majority of the brutality. But how does this fit in with the LaBiancas? It is believed that Tex Watson, Jay Sebring, and Rosemary LaBianca all had connections in the wig industry with Tex formerly working as a wig salesman, Sebring in the hair industry, and Rosemary in the beauty industry. Rosemary's wealth far exceeded what her company was believed to provide, and it has been alleged that Rosemary was running a drug operation out of her mobile and storefront dress shops, but this was only corroborated by anonymous sources. To put this all together, Gary Hinman, a prominent dealer who had a mescaline lab in his basement, Frykowski and Folger had a direct line to sell and distribute MDA, and Rosemary LaBianca had a drug operation run out of her dress shops. Now they are all dead, and it would leave Tex Watson, Charles Manson, and the family as the main distributors of drugs in their area. What I find fascinating about this whole theory is that, like, Mama Cass Elliot from the Mamas and Papas uh, would have these parties and, and whatnot, and, like, Manson, Tex, Susan Atkins, you know, like, pretty much, you know, like, the key players of the Manson family, they're all part of this Hollywood inner circle, you know what I mean? And, and this has been corroborated a, a few times. So, I mean, it's not crazy to think that the Manson family had ties with Sharon Tate, J.C. Bring, you know, Frakowski. For sure. I mean, people don't realize that at that this point, the family has become a criminal organization. They are selling drugs. They're 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 buying guns. They're like 
Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, and then at that point, the Hollywood Hollywood upper echelon already knows that you know about Spawn Ranch and this hippie commune where you buy go buy good acid and this and that. There's a very you know, Folger was found with MDMA in her in her body. They were yeah. obviously. I mean, everybody knows that's the orgy drug right there. Yeah. They've, they, you, we stated in the story, the last, the, the story that you know they would have frequent orgies and you know sex parties and all that stuff where drugs were heavily involved. It's pretty cut and dry that they could have by been buying drugs off the family for a long time. And then when uh, Frykowski and Folger, you know, they had connections to a uh, major drug supplier where Frykowski was now going to be like the premier distributor of of MDA and, and uh, mescaline and all that with Folger as his financier. That could raise some issues with... You know, a little drug turf, a little drug know, turf. Little, Especially when Charlie turf. was trying to build up his army. Exactly. You know, because that, that was their primary source of income. For sure. Was drugs. And that's another thing, too, is I don't think I don't think people realize how big of a, of a drug organization that the family had. I think it's it's swept under that there were these peaceful hippies and stuff like that. But they were running a major drug operation right. out of that fucking ranch. Yeah. You know what I mean? You know, they're going to sweep all this. These are high-profile people. They're going to sweep it under the rug and make it look like just a bunch of hippies are crazy. That, you know, these people wouldn't be just having weird massive orgies, drug-fueled orgies and buying drugs from hippies and, and this big criminal ring going on. Like Numerous people have, have stated, you know, even, you know, police officers that were, like, off the record stated that when they went to the, the Tate house after the murder, they found all this drug paraphernalia. Sure. They found S&M fucking satanic fucking shit, like black hoods and leather and all this. You know what I mean? Like, they're all into that all right, fucking all right, hear me out. freaky shit. Yeah, but back in 1969, that might, to them, that's crazy. You know what I mean? These, yeah. You're talking about men who had missionary sex for the rest of their whole life. You know what I mean? 1969, there was some strong conservative men in the right, world yeah. that ran the world at that point. Well, Hollywood, you know, nowadays it's not too crazy to see a full chain and leather gag mask in yeah. somebody's closet, you know? Yeah, what I mean? especially, you know, especially when, you know, you're, you're talking about an actress, a, uh, at this time, you know, he's he's an up-and-coming director in Rowan Polanski. You have the heiress to the fucking Folger company. Who, in, in 1969, Folger was, you remember the commercials? Yeah. I mean, that was pretty much the only coffee around was Folgers, you know. So, you know. Make your your husband a great cup of Folgers. (laughs) And then wash the... No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Your husband comes home from a hard day at work. Yeah, it's always... Have his Folgers ready for him when he walks in the door. It's all based around the man. Yeah. (laughs) All right, keep keep going. We're getting lost. So, you know, it it makes sense that, you know, when, when they show up, they see all that shit and they're like, fuck, you know, these are some pretty big time names here. It's kind of like, you know, sweep it under the rug. And there were, again, a lot of people noted that there were videos of these sadomasochists, orgies and and whatnot, and Polanski, you know, videotaping three ways with fucking Sharon Tate and all this other kind of crazy You know what's kind of funny? It's just to solidify that Hollywood's always been weird. (laughs) (laughs) Even the 60s, it was weird. Yeah. Imagine what they're doing now. I know. So when you when you talk about like all them being in this inner circle and them knowing each other or, or you know brushing shoulders with each other at parties and all this other kind of stuff, it makes it a bit clearer now that when when Susan Atkins and Patricia Krenwinkel walked by Abigail Folger's room, remember that from the from the story? Yeah, she knew that, and she was like, "Hi," you know, and smiled at him. Well, she fucking knew them. Yeah. That's fucking crazy. It, it makes total sense. Yeah. Oh, oh hey, Susan. Yeah. Hey, hey, Patricia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, by the way, we're fucking killing you tonight, so go fuck yourself. Yeah, that fits the entire, that fits the bill. When I started reading this this theory, I'm like, 
it all fucking makes sense. You know what I mean? Why? Because when I first heard that, you know, Abigail Folger was like, oh, hi, you know, it's fucking strangers walking by. Yeah. Who the fuck does that? I, I don't care. I brought I don't care that if, up in that. I don't care if it's, yeah, uh, like if it's the 60s or not, an open door policy and everything, like I get it, but it's fucking uh, past midnight and random people just fucking walk past your room. Like, I don't care if I know you or not. I'm going to be like, Garrett, what the fuck are you doing here? It's fucking midnight. <laughs> you know? Relax. I just want to take some pictures, Dave. <laughs> yeah, take some pictures. Get the camera. Get the camera. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, like, this all totally makes sense. And, uh, yeah. If if there is one, I would say two so far, that I would go with is the copycat theory, which makes total sense, and the drug burn theory. And the drug burn get theory gets a little wild because then you realize it's a whole... It's a whole fucking wrapped web. up web and all that stuff, yeah. but but it, it it's there. There's there is you can't tell me it doesn't make sense. It yeah. fits. Yep. So now next we will go into Garrett's favorite theory. They're making the frogs gay. <laughs> <laughs> the CIA wants to mind control you. <laughs> so we'll go into what they call the Patsy theory, which uh, involves CIA, MK Ultra, and a whole bunch of crazy shit here in chapter four. MK Ultra was a program facilitated by the CIA, officially from 1953 to 1973, in which the CIA would conduct experiments on individuals, sometimes unknowingly, to assess the use of LSD and other drugs for mind control, counterintelligence, and psychological torture. The origin of MK Ultra was approved by then CIA director Alan Dulles to develop techniques that could be used against the Soviets, China, and North Korea. But before we could use the techniques on our enemies, we had to test them on our own people. The program initially used 150 human subjects to conduct experiments using psychedelic drugs, paralytics, and electroshock therapy. The total number of human subjects may never be known, as the CIA destroyed most of their documents related to MKUltra in 1973. The tests were mainly conducted at hospitals, universities, and prisons throughout the U.S. and Canada. Under the direction of chemist Sidney Gottlieb, it was believed he would be able to harness LSD's mind-altering effects for the use in brainwashing, psychological torture, and implanting false memories, and its ultimate goal, creating the perfect assassin. He oversaw studies at notable universities such as Columbia and Stanford University. Gottlieb also conducted experiments in mescaline, heroin, MDMA, methamphetamines, and mushrooms. MKUltra eventually branched off into more seedy laboratories, including what they called safe houses, in a side project MKUltra called Operation Midnight Climax. It was in these locations that prostitutes employed by the CIA would lure men into the safe house and lace their drinks with mind-altering drugs while agents monitored from behind a two-way mirror from another room. These experiments were conducted primarily in San Francisco, California, in New York City, and it was in 1967 when Manson would become involved. Manson's parole officer, a man by the name of Roger Smith, was a Berkeley doctoral student who was part of a federally funded LSD research program through his work at the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic which possibly answers the question that as Manson's parole officer, why didn't he send Manson back to prison for his drug use? 
Another man, Lewis West, who was also part of the program through the free medical clinic, took ownership of a worn-down Victorian home next to the clinic and set it up as a hippie crash pad to further study the mind-altering effects of LSD. Which now brings us full circle. Lewis West worked for CIA chemist Sidney Gottlieb, the head of MKUltra. Now let's connect the dots. Roger Smith was Manson's parole officer. Smith also worked for the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, which received federal funding through the CIA. Smith worked alongside researcher Lewis West, who directly worked for Sidney Gottlieb, the head of MKUltra. Manson and his commune of runaways and drug addicts would eventually leave San Francisco for Los Angeles, another parole violation which he didn't go back to jail for. This move would appear to end his involvement in the MK Ultra program. However, sometime in late 1968, a man by the name of Alan Rose, an assistant researcher for the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, would make his way to Spawn Ranch and would fully immerse himself within the commune for a period of four months. What interest would the CIA have in Manson and the hippie movement? They were all about peace, love, and free thinking, weren't they? to an extent. They were also anti-government, conducted violent protests against the war in Vietnam, criticized middle-class values and expectations, and to the CIA, were a problem to the way of life in America and to the way the American government conducted business. They had to stop the spread of the hippie movement. Insert MK Ultra, Charles Manson, and his LSD-fueled family. One would be hard-pressed to argue against the hippie movement ending on the hot summer nights of August 9th and August 10th, 1969. Okay, let's start it off by MKUltra. It's wild to think that we, the United States of America, was, were so afraid of the Soviets at this point that we, con- we willingly and openly conducted mind control experiments on the public. Like, this is not, this is not conspiracy theory. This is true. This yeah. is true. They're, they have yep. been redacted. Like, Factual. They're extremely redacted statements or, uh, you know, documents. documents. So we don't know the full extent of it, which is even scarier. Mm. But the fact that we were trying to mind control the population of just random drug addicts on the street is crazy. And it, and it escalated. And this is 1969. Yeah, it escalated because uh, they started off with like, you know, oh, well, you know, this for counter counterintelligence yeah, and, yeah, you know, yeah. kind of like, you yeah. know, lo- loosen their, you know, lower their inhibitions to, you know, basically, you know, get information and everything like that. But it actually like escalated into how can we create the perfect assassin? Correct. You know? And it's, and like I said, this is, in the documents. Yes. That now a little side note, uh fucking Sirhan Sirhan, who killed Robert Kennedy, claims that he has no recollection recollection of doing it. We get we mean, he had no idea w- what he was doing at the hotel. Now also too is not to go off not to go off topic. When you look at yeah. <laughs> yeah, because then we can start saying yeah. James Holmes of the Colorado shooter had no recollection of yeah. what he was doing either. Yeah. Also, too, is when you look at Manson's criminal history, that man should have spent majority of his life in jail. But somehow, men in suits would show up. Mm-hmm. I know I'm using a bold statement, but somebody with higher authorization would be like, nope, let him go. Yeah. Multiple times throughout his life. He should have been staying in jail his, his whole life at that point. Right. He did. He committed many crimes. And well, somehow... Even, even when he was on, on parole, 
he never went back to jail. You know, yeah. after, when he got released in 1967, he got with his parole officer, and you know he was still getting arrested. He was leaving the state. He was doing all this fucking kind of shit that you're, you're not supposed to do on parole. And they're just like, eh, go ahead, keep it. Yeah, no, he's he's all set. He's yeah, all he's set. Good. He's good. You know, they probably were. They, I mean, honestly. If you're looking for mind control experiments and you're, you're studying subjects, Manson would be a very good subject to train. And, and you know, obviously we're going we're going down later in the, the the end of the story where was he a was he the CIA plant to end the '60s peace loving movement? Because they you got to realize too is MK Ultra they canceled this they stopped doing acid because they realized that it made people too self aware. Yeah, and they were too open minded and and they it was actually went against with what they were, they were trying to do. It made people wake up and realize how you know. Yeah, they started getting into like MDA and yeah, they started using that. other things. So that's they they the last thing they wanted to do is realize that the population was they they didn't want the population to wake up to what you know, what especially really 1969. Yeah, and, and the laws and the oppression that had on everybody. The thing the thing that's also kind of opens your eyes and and you know it could be just random people you know just crossing paths doesn't have anything to do any backstory to it whatsoever. But it just my whole thing is that when there's a lot of um, coincidences then it's hard not to look at it as factual. So, you know, you had uh, Manson's parole officer who had, like, 40 fucking clients, and then when Manson gets released, now it's only Manson. Yeah. Uh, He's set up in the Haight-Ashbury section of San Francisco, where Manson is. Uh, They run a fucking free clinic, you know, that a parole officer is also part of the free clinic, which is run... By somebody who who's who has known associations with the CIA, yep, and and they're all doing tests with LSD and and how drugs affect the fucking community and all this other kind of stuff. Yeah, and it wasn't it was you, they were also using mind cold, mind control techniques on them while under the influence. Exactly what Manson was doing to his followers. <laughs> exactly. So all he's taken is the CIA. It's literally it's like a it's Jason Bourne, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, obviously we're joking, but you're teaching this man how to do it. Yeah. He's not dumb. He's gonna develop these, and then he goes and does your job and what you're trying to do better than what you did. You can't tell me that CIA doesn't have a reason to to control an asset at that point. Mm-hmm. Like we need to get this guy off the street. Let's you know do whatever. Right. The one thing that doesn't line up, though, is at this point, it's been years past. Now, Manson's brain at Manson's brain. <laughs> <laughs> That's our new co-host, Hanya. <laughs> Manson's brain is fried, so I don't think he would even understand that he, you know, was it fried though? I think so too, because what what do you have to lose at that point to yeah. not to not expose everything? Because right. he, he never came out and said that anything about the CIA or anything. He never he never right, yeah. followed up into those theories. But the followers have come out and spoke against and realized that Manson ruined their lives. And, you know, they came to eventually. Well, most of them. I'm surprised that they haven't talked more about alternate theories or all that stuff. They mm. still run with the Helter Skelter theory. Yeah. And all that stuff. But then again, they probably just believed it. If anybody was behind it, it was Manson. Right. Yeah, so I, I came across a couple of things here. And then uh, one of them was a government whistleblower. His name was Charles Schlund. Uh, he suggests that the murders may have, in fact, been a social experiment and covert operation carried out by the CIA to put an end to the hippie movement. Uh, Schlund was an investigative journalist, and he spoke of a huge cache of documents that he called the Don Bowles Papers, which were discovered in a robbery in 1970s. Now, Charles Schlund, he states, uh, the war was going badly, and the American people were protesting in ever greater numbers with pictures of pretty flower girls on TV nightly. 
the CIA needed a way of showing the American people that these pretty little flower girls were really Satanists and evil, and that the government was right and just in the Vietnam War. God, I love it. I love it, because it makes so much sense. Now, to do this, the government needed to conduct a massive covert operation to convince the American people that these little flower girls were evil and the free love and peace they talked of was really to cover up this evil. At this, at this point, too, the Vietnam War was severely, severely hated. Oh, yeah. And the, mm-hmm. the, like, the, dislike, the approval ratings of the president at the time and all, like, were, were through the roof. Oh, yeah. So it was almost like an, its own anti-government. There was an anti-government movement across the entire nation. It was, yes, it was, it was big in the hippie movement, but everybody felt that way oh, yeah, yeah. at that point. Why, you know? Now, uh, uh, Schlund, who's now deceased, uh, he said the heist of documents were indeed immensely valuable and included, amongst other things, evidence of Operation Northwood. Uh, you, you know that one? Yes, of yeah. course. <laughs> well, well, here, this is the thing, too, is to anybody who's listening to this podcast and realizing, like, thinking in their head, no, they, they couldn't do that. Look at all the, the CIA, the CIA was shady as Fuck in the yeah. 60s. And the the new one where the CIA has been, quote unquote, confirmed to be behind the killing of uh, the assassination of JFK. Yeah, that's. We could do a whole other episode on and that, that's too. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. Uh, Any, yeah, America's interests. Anything. doesn't matter. Yeah. Whatever is, benefits the interests of America. At yep. that, that was that mindset back in the, the 50s and 60s with the CIA. Because I know we're getting off topic, but I, I know that during Kennedy's presidency, um, it was it was well known that if he if he got re- reelected, he was withdrawing from Vietnam, which is basically giving a victory to communism in the Soviets. And there were numerous upper tier politicians who were against pulling out. So they were like, no, we can't let this happen. Okay, that's a whole nother fucking rabbit hole. <laughs> I was going to say. All right. Conspiracy so, Davy over yeah. here. <laughs> so anyway, so Schlund, uh, he says that these uh, documents included uh, evidence of Operation Northwood, the MK Ultra experiments, and detailed information on the CIA, CIA's involvement in the Manson family murders. Boom. As well as hundreds of other incidents. Uh, Schlund, he filed a notice of claim before the courts. Uh, documented his intent to sue then-United States President George W. Bush regarding the document suppression, but the suit was never actually filed and it never went to trial. Now, another interesting thing about MKUltra is that it wasn't just like a secret, covert operation. You know, people were actually tested yeah. openly. Yeah, there was there was civilians working on that project. Right. That was one of the main reasons why the CIA had to release everything, because there were so many people involved, therapists, doctors, and mm. stuff like that involved in it. Yeah. So there, there's a there's, there's some people of note who willingly volunteered for MKUltra. Shit, I would do it too. No, I'm <laughs> And that was uh, Robert Hunter. He was from the band Grateful Dead. Go figure. <laughs> but a couple of other people was Ted Kaczynski. Do you know who that is? No. The Unabomber? Okay. And Boston mobster James Weddy Bulger. Wow, interesting how they were some of the most, you know. Yeah. Now, here's a little side note. Take it how you will. But the Folger family <laughs> were known to have donated large amounts of money to the programs at the Haight-Ashbury Free Medical Clinic, where allegedly, according to this theory, the vast majority of the mind control experiments were conducted on the Manson family. I mean... You got to take that with a grain of salt, too, though, because the Folger... Oh, that's Folger, what I said. Take, yeah, it, yeah. take it how you but want. But it is fo- crazy how it's all connected. How it's all... It, you like, know what I mean? That little snippet right there connects the uh, MK Ultra. It connects the drug burn theory, you know, that the Folgers were involved in all this fucking kind of shit. You know what I mean? So, I don't know. 
Something to think about. Was yeah, was the Folger company just donating to people in need? Or was there more to it? That's a good question. Dun 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 dun. <laughs> Next time. <no. laughs> Next time on Conspiracy Theories with Dave and Garrett. <laughs> yeah, I just want to point out, you know, something totally different that I've that I came across that uh, isn't so much you know, alternate theory, but it is interesting to note. There are a few unsolved murders that uh, may have possibly been committed by the Manson family. Uh, the first was the murders of 15-year-old James Sharp and 19-year-old Doreen Gall, who were found in an alley in November of 1969, not far from where the Tate murders occurred. And they had similar char- characteristics to the Tate-LaBianca murders, meaning that they were stabbed far more than they needed to be stabbed. Now, both James and Doreen had been former members of a splinter group associated with Scientology called the Process Church of the Final Judgment. And Manson himself... Oh, so another cult? Yes. So Manson himself was also associated with the with the Process cult, and he uh, borrowed some of their ideologies. So they're all interconnected. Scientology, the Process Church, Manson family, they all share the same fucking philosophies you know what i mean that is just could be just mere coincidence you know sure but it's it's note it's noted to say right now also in november of 1969 the body of an unidentified woman uh was found not far from the manson compound at spawn ranch the young woman was stabbed uh, 157 times she was only known as jane doe number 59 until 2016 uh when her autopsy photo you know that they if your body's still in good shape, they'll take a picture of your face and yeah. kind of doctor it up to make it look whatever. So a friend of the family saw the picture 40-some-odd years later. They'd be like, hey, that looks like, you know, this person, you know. So And through DNA uh, evidence, it was, it was confirmed that the that the woman was 19-year-old Reet Jurvetson. Now, a year prior to Reet Jurvetson's body being found, another young woman was found murdered in December of 1968 in close proximity of where Jervison's body was disposed of near Spawn Ranch. Marina Habe was stabbed numerous times in Manson-esque overkill fashion. It was believed to have been stabbed by more than one person. Uh, now, you have four victims, all within well-known Manson locations, dead. Uh, now, the final one is an attorney for Leslie Van Houten disappeared during a recess for the trial in November of 1970. Ronald Hughes' badly decomposed body was found between two boulders in Ventura County. While his death was ruled an accident due to flash floods that had occurred during that time of, the, of his disappearance. Sounds a little suspect to me. Yeah. At least one member of the family, Sandra Good, claimed that Hughes was murdered by Manson's followers as retaliation for his perceived poor defense of Van Houten. Makes sense. And that's connected. That's got to be connected oh, 100%. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's, too ma- there's too many uh, you know, strings that lead it. If you if you want to talk about alternate theories and all this stuff, and even the murders, even if you go with the helter skelter, you know, um, theme, it's amazing how much influence a bunch of hippies that lived in a goddamn on a hippie commune in the middle of the California hills had on uh, they had a chokehold on that area, and it's a, it, it's just it blows my mind is like say CIA say you know the helter skelter any theory that you want, mm. I still can't believe the impact that the, that ragtag bunch of weirdos had um, oh yeah you know that time period mm-hmm. and it, go, it goes and like i said it goes very 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 deep like you can you, you, you turn a corner and, and 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 it splits off again you know what i mean yeah. like the, the amount of uh the reach 
that the Manson family had during this time in this particular area. It crossed from people who left their house because they're being abused by their father up to an heiress to a co- coffee fortune. Yep. You know what I mean? It's, to a pop, uh, to the, the, one of the biggest rock bands in the world. Yeah, like it's, 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 it's crazy. It's ridiculous. It's so much more than just some dirty, smelly hippies, you know, doing acid on the side of a hill in California. Right. It's, it's crazy. Preaching the Beatles album. <laughs> yeah. So that'll do it for alternate theories. I hope you all enjoyed this episode. Uh, before we go, if you like what you heard, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a review, please. And don't forget to become one of our amazing criminals on Patreon. Visit criminalafpodcast.com backslash support. There's five tiers and you can donate as little as $2 a month to help the podcast. You can also find links to our Buy Me a Coffee, socials, merchandise, and more at criminalafpodcast.com. Now, signing off from Studio Chloroform, keep your head on a swivel, and take care till next time. Now, now give me our theme music. See ya. See ya.